season the podcast debuts an original LA novel in serialized episodes along with selected short fiction from West Coast writers both new and established whose works take place at the shifting borders of the American dream. This week we rejoin Catherine Hines epic novel of early 60s Hollywood The Celebrity. It traces the journey of Wanda Fleming, the tenacious, calamity-prone, co-host fatale of TV's Day Talk, who, in the spring of 1962, must face life without her closest ally, settle on one lover, conquer her eating disorder, and ace a round of password in order to secure a coveted game show gig if the world doesn't change too much first. Let's listen now to Catherine Hine reading this week's episode of The Celebrity on The Last We Fake. Wanda woke up to Howard stroking her hair and offering her a cup of coffee. As sweet as this gesture was, it felt more like an act of cruelty. The nightmarish fact was she had only been asleep 30 minutes. When they had first gone back to bed, Howard stayed a mile away. She kept smelling the ends of her hair to see if they had been vomit sprayed. No, she was still clean on the outside. But then again, Howard had that gallbladder obsession. If he had to upchuck, it meant a fear-packed trip to the emergency room. And here he was being the very thing she had wanted, but she would rather swim up to a biting Mako than wake up right now. Only if she wanted her gig, she had no choice. The whole year they were apart, she woke up thinking of things she missed about Howard. His eyes. He never took his eyes off of her. Watched everything and looked straight into her eyes. Always. That was a place he liked to live. And this was more about the naked truth than Wanda was used to, but it fascinated her. What had he missed about her? While he was gone, she dreamed of the flat of his hand and his penis which in her imagination where food trumped body heat was converted to marshmallows on a stick, sweet with a hard core. What he had lacked before, though, was this kind of tenderness. The thing was that in a second, crisis momentarily forgotten, and Howard back at the office, she could easily be a little wet lamprey fused to the small of Chase McSteve's back. Who knows when Chase would show up for that ride on his triumph. She knew full well she would take it just where and when he said he wanted to go, fast at night, between the tongues of eucalyptus and the finger-like wings of the royal palms that lined the canyon, or anywhere else for that matter. And she was not alone in this. What about Howard and his strawberry flamingo? They hadn't gotten to that yet, only because they had not had time. Sooner or later, the grilling would begin. You had your man you fucked, and then you had the man you fought about that man with. But the second one was your real boyfriend, the one that made you part of a couple and not a slut. Wanda wasn't panicked about grandmother yet, because last night she had decided to pretend 
It was nothing until she knew otherwise. It was a good pretend, which wouldn't last, but enabled her to take the coffee and start her day. Call me today if you can't breathe, Howard said. Pulling off all the bedclothes, shaking them once, and then letting them land back on the mattress, like an outstretched parachute, his version of making the bed. If I can't breathe, it won't be me who calls, she said. You know what I mean. I know, sweet. I'm not breathing now. She was digging for the torn red panties she was sure were still in her bureau. I have a meeting with a press agent at Acme, but I'll check in. With Dorothea? Howard glared at her. Who's the big sign at Acme, he asked. No one you know. That means the opposite. Who is it? Wanda, are you sure you want to do this right now? Shouldn't you be getting dressed? I am, she said. Thanks for the coffee, Howard. He was right. They only had time for fibs right now. But tell me who it is. If you really didn't want me to know, you would have made up someone like Ethel Merman or Kate Smith or Zero Mostel, he said. Right, like that. But who is it? Why aren't you telling me? It's Inga Dahlman, Wanda, okay? Howard, what? How could you? You know how I feel about her. God damn it. Howard. She slammed the drawer with her fist and still balled up around a barely crotchworthy strip of lace. I wasn't even seeing you then, Howard said. Can't you turn down a single client? Would you go all to hell if you did that? Why did you even tell me anyway? Jesus, Wanda, grow up. It's just business. She was growing up. Yesterday she would have begged to find out if not seeing you meant that he had been seeing her again. But today she didn't. She went in the bathroom and turned on the shower. She couldn't even say why exactly, except that it was time. She felt funny. Something was missing. This was too grown up and she didn't really mean it. She picked up a hand mirror and hurled it against the back of the door to scare him. It's okay, honey, she yelled out after the clattering of dropped glass completed its effect. I just dropped something. Be careful, baby, it's already seven o'clock. Now the coffee was wearing off, and Wanda had to roll the car windows down to keep her eyes open. She reminded herself that grandmother had to be okay until she could get to a phone on the lot. She looked down at her white crepe blouse and black Toreador pants and felt like an idiot showing up at the only color show on the network dressed like the blob. In 1962, NBC pranced out its peacock logo to introduce the programs it would broadcast in color because first up in the season lineup was Abilene. The icon became known as the peacock. Abilene was a plum choice to unveil the peacock. Her Jake Jones, playing Sam Johnson, looked even beefier in color. His blue eyes and cherry blossom cheeks stole the screen from the prairie. And he wasn't even the looker of the cast. That was Bob Stewart, the swarthy one playing the stranger. Jake made up for it with his robust oomph and some seasoned lines around the eyes. He was the picture of health but he never relaxed, not for a second. He worried constantly that his two parts conceit 
might let down the one-part Casper milk toast. If you stuck a clump of colored feathers under his belt, he could not appear more like the Abilene peacock than he already was. Jones worked everyone around him to prove that his full-spectrum mug was phenomenon enough to fill a whole chroma-color screen. Gabriel Fernandez, the actor who played Cloud Dancer, claimed it just before his pickup shots. Jake insisted that Gabriel slap him silly to bring out the contrast. But just like the rest of the cast, his official line to the press and such was that he didn't give a shit about anything but his craft. The change to an RCA camera didn't affect him in the least. Jones was an actor, not an artist model. Leave the lighting and the makeup to the fairies below the line. That was their job. He was lying, though. They all were. The prospect of color had them jittery. Wanda was not that happy about it either. Having your T-zone and every erupting blackhead, ubra-magnified by the chroma unit, put a lot of pressure on everyone with a face. It was a witch's talking clock in a fairy tale. Hey, you. 30, 31, 32, 33. Your magic hour is ending. Pulling into the dusty driveway of the lot off Cahuenga, Wanda switched on her windshield wipers and put them on fast. A fine drizzle had become a light shower, and as screwy as she already felt, the last thing she needed was to misjudge the distance between her and some production exec's sleek hunk of steel. She crawled through the muddy lot and eased into a roomy space at the end of an aisle. As she stepped outside the car, the uncomfortable dripping anointed her with another layer of misery. But truthfully, she was much more concerned with her distended stomach than the rayon blouse grafting itself to her shoulders with every trickle. Almost involuntarily, she stroked her belly with her left hand, as if she could smooth it away. Instead, she was treated to the horror of discovering a small hillock of flabalanche toppling over her flat front pant. Sometimes it was like this. A barf backed up as gas. She visioned performing emergency surgery to remove the overage. To protect herself from the annoying raindrops, she tried to cover the top of her head with her other hand. She needed no mirror to feel the awful flat texture of her dry hair. This meant a bozo look coming on from the shower overhead as the lilt from Mr. Leclerc of Paris's sunlight desperately called out for conditioning treatment. This is not how Wanda wanted to re-enter the gates of Universal. As far as her hair was concerned, she just couldn't keep up with it, and she wasn't name enough to get someone out to the studio to transform her do. She was far too busy to begin the negotiations it took to get into Mars. But once she started grabbing the top of her head to check her fuzz, it was time to worry up an appointment any way she could. Good that sheer head scarves tied just under the chin, were in. Too bad she didn't have one. She had worn it in the house yesterday morning and never put it back. But with Claudia Cardinelli's shades, she could buy a little more time without thoroughly upsetting her head-to-toe fashion profile. Just for today, maybe Sparks had something to make do. She looked around and didn't see Sparks' distinctive Aston Martin anywhere. Remembering yesterday's conversation, Wanda felt a second of panic. He was probably just hung over. 
Once in a blue moon, people called in sick rather than stagger in late. These were all possibilities. He was no stranger to the tortured love by night, eccentric professional by day game that many of them played. The rules of that game allowed you the highest degree of catty, ill-mannered conduct once you made it to work, yet tolerated a very slim percentage of lates or no-shows to the job. Sparks was probably just around the corner. Because she knew her way around, Wanda made her way over to the Jitney stop and hopped on one of the old ragtag school buses that the studio used for shuttling people within the lot. These shuttles always felt more like carnival rides than anything else, considering that you more likely sat down next to a Napoleonic soldier or a can-can girl than street dress personnel. Wanda got off at Abilene Street, but it was deserted. Was there some new snafu? Without any action to distract her, she was struck by how dirty the Old West must have been. Here were two muddy blocks of a clapboard ghost town, freshly painted and waiting for life. Even standing out in the middle of it like this, she could smell the mildew, and the wind seemed to seal her in a sticky veil of grime. There were piles of disintegrating road apples here and there to get a good whiff of. Consider the probability that the guys played so gorgeous on TV today would not even have bathed back then unless they were in a whorehouse. For all her other problems, Wanda was suddenly grateful to have missed the 19th century. Before she had a chance to decide on her next move, Leonard popped around the corner of the Hubbard Dry Goods shack. Oh, good, you're here, he said. Where is everybody? Move to the psycho house to set up the explosion. We'll put you on the horse here, and then we'll follow you over with the camera. Give the viewers a peek inside the lot. Now? With me like this? You mean right now? Between the binge and a rain-deflated bubble, Wanda considered her undoing so obvious that she was astonished to find Leonard treated her as he always did, let alone suggesting that she go on camera. Where was Sparks? What about wardrobe? What about shoes? Was all that came out as she looked up to see Leonard meant business. Enter Ajax the horse. The big creature rounded the corner at the holy end of the street, the blind cul-de-sac where all good western sets filled the church and the cemetery. Camera on gun smoke had filled her in on this. So as you always get a shot of the cross behind the sheriff when he draws his gun. When Wanda spotted her own dead end of out of excuses, survival instinct replaced insecurity. She couldn't wedge these Chinese slippers into a stirrup any more than she could mount barefoot. We'll get you some boots till we get you made up, Leonard offered. He seemed distracted by the effort to match his urbane style to the rougher trade of this horsey crew and had no attention to spare reassuring Wanda. But he had said it, the magic word, makeup, so he was still on top of it, or had he just noticed she was a real mess? Not that horse! Now Wanda heard another loud voice exclaim. It boomed out from the flat siding opposite the Winthrop Hotel. You would think they had orchestrated their own stakeout, the way these guys were stepping from behind one set piece and another. Those same echoes and dusky smell that got to her turned them all into little boys acting out their old game. No wonder Leonard felt out of his element here, 
dressed in his usual golf sweater and wingtip shoes. Then close up in foreground stepped Wanda's newest problem. The oncoming clip-clop, clip-clop, was accompanied by a kindly, come on, boy, steady as she goes. A walker in coveralls leading the bridle never looked away from his charge. She watched them get nearer and nearer until she understood the consternation. It was a very oddly gated and hesitant Appaloosa which stepped her way, apparently as unenthusiastic about the arrangement as she was. I thought we were holding crazy horse for Miss Fleming. The hidden man now appeared in dark brown shirt sleeves and barked to coveralls, who still hung tight to the wrong horse. Nope, he answered. That guy playing outlaw Samuels got him. And Ajax is all you got left? Where's Argentina? Cosmo. There's just Ajax, I tell you. Don't get yourself worked up. I'll keep an eye on him. Well, we better prepare Miss Fleming if she's not used to him. Not used to what, she yelled over. Prepare me for what? Maybe you'd better get back that crazy horse or whoever from that outlaw. I've been away from the sport for a while. Just get on the horse, Wanda, said Leonard. It's not a rodeo. Ajax'll do you fine, ma'am. Let me give you a few pointers first and it'll be a cakewalk. What sort of pointers? Wanda got a better look when they got up close. He was a blanket of crazy misshapen spots. He looked like an overgrown Dalmatian, and he couldn't like look like much on camera with all that blight on his side. Where were those golden-looking breeds? What about an all-black stallion? Plus, the boy was so unnerved. Stock still, he looked sound enough, but in her whole life she'd never seen any horse scoot to the right and left like that at a natural clip. Not only did he weave, but he also straight out paused every few feet for just a beat and then started up again. This Ajax looked strong as could be, not winded in the least, but he was certainly a strange one. Could a horse be mentally retarded? Wonder why they separated him, and worse, what lapse in their thinking made them think she could overcome his behavioral problems. If he spooked too easily, they'd make a fine pair today. Thank God at least the company had moved on and left behind a relatively tiny gathering to witness her transition from two legs to six. After standing so long alone with the horse hands in the gusty mists of surreal landscape, Wanda was startled to hear what sounded like one of the transports they used over at McHale's Navy pull up behind them. It was no World War II transport. It was a horse trailer pulled by a cab painted clearly with the words Griffith Stables. Leonard looked very relieved at his, as his own private horse, Pocono, was unloaded with equal noise and solicitude by the driver. Wanda sneered at him. You couldn't have brought one for me? There's no time, he said. We have to get you over to wardrobe. It was bad. Don't worry about Jimmy, Miss Fleming. I thought his name was Ajax, she said. I'm Jimmy, yelled the brown shirt who never left his place in front of the Winthrop, posing like the innkeeper for a hotel that never was and didn't even have any insides. Name's Doug. Coveralls stuck out a sandpapery hand. The pleasure is mine, Wanda said. And this is Ajax. She nodded slightly, not sure if she should touch him or not. 
He'll do you fine, ma'am. He's a little odd, but he's gentle and slow. He had a scare in the sequoias last year. Stuck on a cliff face. Rescued him myself. He's getting better. We use him as an extra on all the shows tied to a post. You've probably seen him setting in front of the stage office on the Virginian. Has he ever been on Password? Wanda felt the nervous excitement that comes just before Rollum when she saw Leonard saddled up on Pocono and a tracking crew coming up the utility road on their flatbed. You said I need pointers, she said to Doug. We'll all be nearby, but just in case he jibs too far, just chuck him with your heel right here. He slapped Ajax on his olive-colored right flank with a fun-loving whack. If he stops to paw and dig, that's okay, don't chuck him. Just wait about ten seconds and then give the reins a little tug. Maybe you should write all this down. It's getting kind of complicated, she said. No, no, that's all. Well, there's one more thing. Just in case, no one knows why, but he'll buck if he sees a jackrabbit. We see them occasionally up the road, but not likely when it's raining. But it's not raining, it's drizzling. The sun's going to come out. What are you telling me? What do you mean by buck? What do I do? Just hang on tight. He won't throw you off. Wanda, Leonard yelled. Get those shoes on. Let's go. Here. Doug stuck a pair of men's boots in her face. No socks and three sizes too big. She yanked them on and took Doug's boost into the stirrup. The sandpaper hands made a nice taut cup under her ass. Once she settled it somewhere onto the cool leather contours of the saddle, she looked into his face and saw that the boyhood innocence had returned. She left him holding a handful of rhinestone-encrusted black satin kitten heels in exchange. Here back, she thought. As they all trotted off unhappily, she gave the mummified Jimmy a little wave. He managed a tiny eyebrow lift in return. She had an uncle like that with a face that held no expression. The only time she saw him smile was when they were at Sambo's, and a waitress asked him what kind of salad dressing he wanted. He seemed excited that he got to make a personal choice on top of the novelty of an away-from-home dinner. Who is that guy, anyway, she asked Leonard. That's the producer, he said. The producer of Abilene? You're kidding. She looked back to wave again with more feeling, but he was gone. Doug had replaced him and had taken a seat on the railing at the old Winthrop that wasn't. He offered Wanda a big wave with a doing great mess. Remember, chug if you need to, but not too hard. She tried what she thought was a tiny chug just to see the effect, and Ajax threw his head. Since her minimal horse history was relegated to two or three basic lessons and the childhood sessions with the fortune-telling Serrano back in Midway City, she took this response as a no and tried no further experimentation. Leonard's Pocono was a lordly Palomino who couldn't have fit him more perfectly if he had been wearing a golf sweater of his own. In contrast to their enviable symmetry, Wanda had her hands full, staying balanced on top of her guy. Leonard held camera while she got a feel for just what it was going to take to stay upright. Ajax's candor had such an uncanny rhythm to it that she was forced to quickly unlearn whatever posting skill she had. She substituted awkwardly melding her shins to his hindquarters 
in the hope she would get the hang of him before long. That had not yet happened when Leonard decided to step it up. Ready, he said. She knew it was not really a question. Action, he said quietly to the two men on camera, riveted on her every flinch and thigh squeeze. She tried to keep her gaze forward both to help Ajax amble straight and to lessen her insecurity about sagging face muscles from the sleepless night. She directed herself as if she were still doing stills with Broderick Crawford on the old highway patrol. Look natural, but don't move. So, Wanda, how does it feel to be on that horse? How does it feel to be on the horse? Repeating the idiotic question gave her another second to think. You mean the sunburn part of me or the other part? Ha ha, viewers. Those of you who were lucky enough to catch us yesterday morning with Chase McSteve got an eyeful of our lovely Wanda on the sand. We all got a little burn, didn't we, Wanda? Wanda shook her head imperceptibly at his little dig about McSteve's quick book to Spain. We sure did. You should see the inside of my thighs. But you, Leonard, you were covered up like a beekeeper. Still are. You must have the skin of a newborn. No sun rash for you. Well, it looks like we don't have far to go now, Leonard said. No, oops. What was that, a rabbit? Ajax had spooked over something she didn't see. It was still overcast. According to Doug's folksy prediction, there could be no rabbit without the sun. But Ajax pulled up just short of bucking and then scooted three feet to the right. She quickly saw that she had been holding on so tight with that hand that his bit was irritated. She relaxed and so did he. She was so tickled to have figured it out using common sense without anyone yelling, watch out, chug, or so on, and so forth, that she bounced right back with, not far at all. Hear that sound, viewers, like a bomb going off? That's where we're headed. And we'll bring you all the action. What are they doing today, Leonard, setting a house afire? I believe they are. Sorry to spoil it for you, viewers, but the barn doesn't really burn down. It doesn't? The sun's coming out, too. Looks like another great day for sunburn, Wanda said. She got him back. He laughed at her and gave her the signal to wrap it up. Stay tuned, viewers. This is going to be a fun show, he used. With a lot of handsome cowboys to show off, so come right back, she said adorably, and they cut, just as the company was in full sight. There seemed to be some sort of technical problem with the explosives. A special effects crew was huddled to the side of the house. Everyone else was standing around and smoking and eating crullers. Leonard, I need to talk to you about something. Can it wait, he said. Look, June's over there waiting for you. The wardrobe lady dressed all in red, her ponytail tied in a big scarf, stood with her arms folded at the door of her trailer. It can't wait long, she said. I'm not going anywhere. Wanda could pull off the morning, but as soon as they wrapped for lunch, she was going to find a phone or die trying. If she didn't get someone then, she would simply leave early and drive down. He would just have to understand. If she missed Rocky Gaines tomorrow, so be it. Though she had wanted to meet James Godson, she had heard a thing or two about his sex technique. Something he did with goldfish. I'm serious, Leonard, and where is Sparks? 
We'll talk about that later, too, Leonard said. Uh-oh. And now did she have to squeeze into some sort of rib-crushing corset? Hurry up. June's a harpy when she gets delayed, Leonard said. Don't think I don't remember that. Wanda handed over Ajax to a nameless man in plaid flannel, stepping down like a courtesan with the help of his grasp. Maybe she imagined it, but Ajax seemed a little sorry to see her go. She tentatively touched the tip of his ear. He didn't toss. See you later, she said. Arnie Sandoval, slight but possessing a bellow that could call a moose once he got on his bullhorn, was directing Abilene, episode 27-6. Arnie's nickname was Sandy the Clock, but it usually came out as Sandy the Cock. It all had to do with his obsession with time and a crazy clock he had imported from a Vincent Price flick. It was an oversized prop headed by the number 13, and its hands were lightning bolts. Sandy had it sent to the electric shop, had it wired, and now wherever he took the director's chair, the crazy clock hung on the script bag of his armrest. He had a second one made to match, a black one with glow-in-the-dark lightning were the unfortunate times when they went on overtime and were forced into day for night. Every hour on the hour, or as close as he could come to cut, out came a deafening, three, four, five o'clock. Three, four, five o'clock, what have you. How late does that make us now? Whoever was closest to him was expected to calculate the hours since his own call time and bark it back to Sandoval, also known for his red leather shoes, presumably from Spain, but unlike anyone had ever seen anywhere. The idea behind Sandy's hourly grilling was that when you worked on his set, you were always a day late and a thousand dollars short. So speed it up in places. Now. Wanda felt particularly grateful to be only a guest on Abilene's Who Trespass Against Us episode. Usually nothing more than a party costume bear, Leonard was as sulky as herself today, and as much of a despot as she could handle, all things considered. Sandoval offered Wanda a perfunctory handshake when she made it off Ajax's hind and onto solid ground. Never looked better, he said, looking her up and down and wearing his own brand of undertaker's smile. Never felt worse, she thought, saying, I should say the same about you. He explained why they were out by Singapore Lake. He was about to film an explosion at the old Hooper place, commonly the Psycho House. Clyde Jenkins was guest-starring as a loner pastor with a drinking problem. Wanda shook Jenkins' hand with gusto perversely imagining herself to be a gigantic snapdragon, wrapping her petal flesh around this tall, all-in-black jigger of vigor. In character, he would turn on his portrayal of holy man worn by the devil, but here and now his country simple, great to see ya, bathe her horseback mushy genitals in the hot little firelight. Much needed. And since returning... It dawned on her that the effort it had taken to accommodate Ajax's willy-nilly nerves, while appearing composed as the lens recorded her every twitching fold of flab and sleep-deprived slack skin, had actually provided a welcome refuge from her own thoughts. She hesitated before moving too far away from the horse. The large, screwed-up animal was her new best friend. That sweaty alfalfa odor began to appeal to her, 
They were a natural pairing. Both she and Ajax were new on the outs in a tricky place which had formerly hung their stars. Just like Doug had told her to steer Ajax by looking straight ahead instead of trying to direct him, she pointed her own nose toward wardrobe to get herself moving. But as soon as she looked any further into the set past Sandy's crazy clock, she spotted Jones staging a fight behind a stack of crates. She wished he had seen her arrive on horseback. Maybe he had. Hadn't someone told him she was coming? Then why wasn't he acknowledging her? He had probably become infatuated with his own over-rehearsed, upper-cut ballet, and an ego like his couldn't be expected to brook too many distractions. But then she couldn't really be sure, could she? She decided to move in close enough for a flirty, but nevertheless, busy on her way somewhere else wave. Before she had a chance to architect the complete look, she stepped a step back and landed on a muddy eucalyptus branch. She fell on her hands this time and caught herself. Too embarrassed to look up and too curious not to, while still in position for a rollicking round of twister, Wanda craned her neck to check if Jones had seen the slip. No problem there. Fully satisfied with his dress-rehearsed output, he was now walking the other way, slapping the actor that played trespasser number two heartily on the back with his good hand. She remembered all about Jake's good hand. It was the left one. There was only one thing he liked better than showing off his craft, and that was showing off his good hand and what it could do for her. And there was Lady June. That witch cat in her cinched-up red check dirndl still stood there fuming. Wanda got up with an offer of help from the script girl and made her way toward the miniature coach. Here she would sacrifice her best efforts at Wanda as presentable for knockout of the dust. She was confident, though. June was a miracle worker with a temper that goes along with a character of ecstatic magician, reduced to only behind-the-scenes voilas. Wanda evaluated wardrobe personnel using this trace of temper, like other people judged a diner by the number of trucks in the lot. Only frankly using that definition of temperament, at diner June, you really needed an overflow lot to hold all of the rigs. Wanda was struck by the eerie atmosphere of the temporary location. A strange mandate to operate slow-mo, seemed to emanate from an invisible source on the hill. Even the shrubs along the road obeyed, holding to an uncommon stillness down to the last dirty leaf. Even though the clock was supposed to be king here, there was a dopey, languorous feeling in the air, a feeling aided by the cloud cover that muffled the many voices, stifled the ceaseless sound of pounding and hammering, and modulated the whine of electric carts and equipment trucks crossing over gravel. The entire spectrum of set noise was reduced to one unified tone because of the nimbostratus cloud which also held fast, hugging the whole phony frontier to its brutish belly. The Old West must have had a far different sonic environment. At desert noon or cool of evening, you could probably just as clearly hear an approaching train or wagon by some distant rumble under your feet. But all good Western stories were about being tricked, sneaked up upon, raided by wranglers, enemy tribes, malfeasance of every stripe. Bad females, though, seemed confined to the whorehouse 
where the only thing really bad about them was also the good thing they were desired for. But wasn't it awful difficult to sneak up on someone whose senses were so attuned to the land he literally lived from? Yet folks were routinely scalped, pillaged, overrun, right? Not that they hadn't somehow earned it. Whole communities massacred by rangers. How could that happen when you could see for miles and hear for even further? What a word world that must have been. As to an overcast day on the Universal set, it was a dream come true for the lighting director. Shadows were minimized, hues accurate, and the unique pattern required for even chrominance was easy to maintain. That meant less messing with filters and screens, which meant less waste of time, and that meant more money to waste at the back end of production. That was a very good thing today, since everything that could was confounding the technical setup of the Hooper Place fire. The delays left every already over-prepped performer, both sides of the camera, just standing around in a personal fog, fueled by more crawlers, more coffee. The collective lag was so great, apparently, that no one even had the energy to pull out a deck of cards. That was a cute trick you did back there, June said as Wanda finally got to her door. Good thing you still have your dancer's legs. I'm just glad anyone noticed it at all, she said. In the real Abilene, a dozen men would have run to keep me from falling and landing on my ass. You could see how that didn't happen here. The real Abilene, this ain't. That's why they call it film. It's not real. Half of these guys are not even real men, much less gentlemen. It wasn't what she said, but June's voice had no fun left in it. Wanda remembered it differently, sarcastic yet possessed of that elastic tug that says, We get it, you and I. That was gone. When did you get so sour? It's been a couple of years, June, but I know you. What's up? Aren't you getting any loving? They've got me on three shows at one time with review on the lot now. Well, this one's going nowhere fast so far today, so what are you so wound up about? June pressed her inky black bangs flat on her forehead and tightened the knot holding her bob. Wanda noticed how she perspired even in the cool morning. Of course her makeup was perfect, wherever it was not grazed by the dew. And look at that. She still wore her black pearl ring with her signature, ever-changing stylistic mode of the day, which today was double for nothing, beatnik on top and Swiss-German kind on bottom. You don't get it. The instant they get that set up, I have to have duplicate wardrobe in three separate stages of fire-beaten and dirty from fight on your set for five different pissers. And remember Adrian? He's now review, too and he's ringing up every 35 minutes about a space pilot suit. You mean like Martians, Wanda said? More singed costumes? Funny you should say that. It's the other way around. There's this runaway saucer that encounters a real space spheric mystery, where everything freezes but the human body. I've spent two fucking nights wearing up a frozen spacesuit that will hold its shape. I can imagine. You don't want a flimsy Martian, Wanda sympathized. It's not a Martian. Why aren't you listening? And no, you sure don't. I'm sick of the whole thing. I should just quit right now. Right fucking now. Well, at least wait till you're done with me, would you? Wanda looked around the room, curious to see the results of the frozen space experiment. 
There was no evidence of the torture design process anywhere to be seen. Was this thankless job all undertaken in June's own boudoir wardrobe? And what in June's hands could that possibly look like when the costume mistress's own personal vestments were never repeated twice in a year and interpreted to the wildest extreme of chic at that? June prayed it on at the same rate that her flats clicked around the false flooring. To no seeming purpose, her hands moved continuously, shuffling diagrams, storming through racks of jackets and piles of men's boots. She seemed to be looking for something that could never be found. The musty smell inside the clothes space was suffocating, leading Wanda to wonder if clothing made to look old was actually authentic, found at an auction somewhere, scratchy old garments of the long-since dead. It gave her the creeps. I could compare notes about the last two nights, Wanda went on, doing second banana. Joan was undeterred. The third shows that one on the strip with the cool dad. I just can't be bothered. You mean Ed Burns? And Ed Burns look alike. That's still something to look at. Does he strip down right in here? I wouldn't care if he did. Anyway, I've seen better than Cookie's twin. He's just another page in my measurement book. Really? I think you should do something about that. Here it is. June's voice was caught between the two crushed velvet antebellum gowns, full petticoat, and a stack of hat boxes she was crawling through. The here she was referring to was a hideous orange farm dress with cotton lace at its every edge. You don't expect me to wear that, do you? I damn well do. They want you to blend in with the background so you can pull off your commentary without further annoying old Sandy. Unless they dress the field with poppies, you can't be serious about me blending in. This is your dress, Wanda. Let me do my job. I know what I'm doing. Wait till they see what I'm really capable of. I'm not a mannequin hack or a lab tech. Did I waste that ninny-headed scholarship all those years at Chenard just to stay up screwing around with rubberized LeMay? I stayed up all night too, June. Geez, you just don't quit. Who isn't overworked? But do you mind? I'm not going to wear that thing. You must have something else. Why did you stay up all night, by the way? You sick or something? I, before you answer, what's wrong with Leonard? He's a moody turd today. I thought so too. I, I'll tell you what's wrong, June interrupted, taking a hard look at Wanda's midsection. You've gotten fat. You're not pregnant, are you? No, God Almighty, you're a piece of work. What a nerve. It's just a tiny pooch, June. You know, water weight. It's very squeezable. Just try. June held the dress up to Wanda's back, briskly stirring the air as she nearly whipped the garment against her sunburned, vulnerable skin. She pinched hard at both sides of Wanda's waistline, pulled at the seamed edges of the dress, then pinched again. Turn around, she commanded. Wanda complied. The same ritual was performed against her even more vulnerable stomach. You must have gained ten pounds. We can't use this dress. Why didn't somebody tell me? Tell you what, Wanda said, that I ate a peanut butter sandwich last month? It's not that big a deal. And also, at most, it's only three pounds, not ten. June walked to the back of the trailer and came back with a gold spray-painted elbow macaroni decorated file box. She opened it and filed through. A, B, C, F, 
Wanda Fleming. That's you, right? 3822-36. Little round ass. Shoe size six. No calves to speak of. Nothing's changed, Wanda said. That's still me. Size six shoes. No calves. Sorry, darling, but something has definitely changed. You want I should get out the measuring tape? Never mind. I don't have this kind of time. I know what. I'll put you in coveralls. There's some leftover from trespasser number one and two. And that would make me trespasser number three? It's just a name on a script. It's easier on the horse anyway. Look, I'm sure I can squeeze into the dress. It's only been two years. I'm on a constant diet. You want the dress now? Fancy that. Well, you need to cut out something else, dearie. If I put you in this dress, you'll have a fleshy porthole where this belt should be. Don't embarrass yourself or my good name. Wanda started to cry. She was just no match for this monsterina. I'm sorry, honey. I'm just telling you what I'd want you to tell me. Girls gotta stick together if we're gonna make it out here. I have a tan fabric here. This will go nice with your hair. Didn't it used to be darker, kind of a coffee brown? Are you trying to go blonde now? Forget it. It doesn't look good on anyone but the naturals like Inga Dahlman. June knew full well she had always been a redhead. Wanda had nothing further to say. Her mother had been cruel like this when things were bad. Actually, all her female relatives except grandmother were little she-devils. It was best to think of tirades such as these as kind of a tornado. Go down into your private cellar, try to convince yourself they're just jealous, and wait out the return of the person you once knew. Stupidly, Wanda had somehow looked forward to telling June about the last two nights, about her grandmother, about McSteve. A disinterested worker, perfect female pal, she thought. Delusional. She had just gotten all too used to her weep sessions with Sparks. And where the fuck was he, anyway? He needed to be here. All the queers said June slept in the nude with a measuring tape tied around her belly. There were photographs. Who knows how they got them? Just now Wanda wanted to hang her with rolled-up yellow tape. All the same, she should probably take her up on the offer to record her new statistics. It couldn't be true what she said, that she had outgrown two sizes in two years. At least Howard hadn't seemed to notice, and her co-star Ajax didn't give a crap about it. As a matter of fact, he seemed to find her an agreeable size. This was the only comfort she had as she took off her creamy little silk and stepped into the dreary chain-gang jumpsuit. Wanda was still checking herself in the mirror, grabbing at her numerous fat pouches, under the fabric, when everyone heard the 10 a.m. time call from Sandoval's own lips. This was quickly followed by a surprising, Ready, everyone! No one was ready, but they got ready fast, rushing from every end of the location to mark their places. Wanda happily let June's door slam behind her to go find Leonard and the horse. The last thing she saw through the trailer window was June rifling through the portable toilet's attached cabinet, feverishly looking for something. Neither woman said goodbye, nor good luck with the show, a nicety which was absurd to expect from the woman, but which nevertheless Wanda did expect. But wait, God damn it, there was something else she needed, succumbing to a stress-induced habit of returning to the worst person possible to ask for help. She wrestled back in her baggy tan jumpers, and knocked lightly at the trailer door. 
June opened it and held it ajar with her shoulder as she fiddled with filling a cup of water in her other hand. Before I go, Wanda said dumbly. She was in fact already gone, long gone from June's perspective. Do you know if Myra still works in Hotch's office? To counter June's perturbed what-the-fuck look, Wanda had to remind herself that the only important person on this lot was not on this lot. That person was her grandmother, a possibly ailing super-self to Wanda. While Arnie's crazy clock was ticking loud and mean, the only real time in today's true purpose for it was to get to a phone, find her grandmother, and get down there to see her if she could. So she needed to make tracks on that score, no matter how loud everything in front of her face barked up the nothing-else-matters-but-me-and-this-show tree. This production secretary, Myra, had been a pal in the past, and if Wanda could get to Hotchkiss's office at set break, she'd be home free with a sister of sorts to watch her back while she stole someone else's private office. With Sparks and No-Show and Leonard in a snit of unknown origin, she hadn't even been able to break it to him. The fact was now the less said the better until she faced facts and either got on with it or got off the set and on the road. The show's chips and her own performance would have to fall where they may. I've never heard of her, but what do I know about the secretaries? I don't dress them. I don't meet anyone until she needs a blind stitch hem on a waistband no bigger than both of our wristwatches, laid end to end. Remember those days? June fingered a piece of the coverall and pulled in to rub in the contrast between Wanda and her figure today versus those days. But Wanda was stronger in the second pass by June's headquarters. The sudden awareness that her core foundation was at risk had made a different person out of her. I have something for Myra, Wanda said. I don't want to traipse over there for nothing. You know who she is. Very plain. She always sits in the commissary under the back window next to stage five. Always has a hot dog. No bun. And iced tea. You're painting a very vivid picture of someone I wouldn't even want to remember. Why don't you just call over there? Here you can use my phone. Hey, yeah, come and use the phone. That'd do me a favor. You can tie up my line. Keep Adrian away. Wanda was desperate, but not desperate enough to go back in there with her heart likely to break in the only place it mattered when she got next to a telephone and actually dialed up. Not Myra, but her aunt. No, that's okay. I need to get back to the set. As she walked toward the psycho house, all she could think of was the lunch wrap. She tried to remember when that never-wavering Myra made her commissary stop. She wouldn't whisper a single problem to a solitary soul until she could get to the French doors that fronted Hotchkiss Productions. Someone would remember her. Someone would help. She could hold it until then. She would be taking it from all sides today. After a lot of yucks about the camouflage culottes, Leonard informed her that their remote unit was in the barn and would film her through the open gate. From her mark there, dressed now as Trespasser 3, she could also stay comfortably as background in the Abilene DP setup. The dreadful coveralls had actually come in useful. She could remain on camera throughout the filming of the explosion from her place by the stable. Up on the horse, you've got a perfect angle on the detonation text. Explain the ground device holdup. 
all the guys it takes for a pyro crew, the fire truck behind us, take in the whole scene for us as an outsider. How do I explain a ground device, said Wanda. I don't know anything about it. Get someone from the tech crew to explain it, can't you? No, it's got to be you and only you, said Leonard. Just report what you can see. We can't get any closer. We're lucky Sandy's using us in the shot. Keep it sweet. We're live. No one's expecting a genius here. Just describe whatever happens. Did anyone think about the horse? He's afraid of wild rabbits. How's this going to fix him? Look, everyone knows what they're doing, Leonard said. This is an acting horse. The two of you just do your jobs. Leonard quickly slipped backward out of sight, positioning himself next to the crew with the stealth of a double agent. How furtive the whole business seemed suddenly. This was crazy. On her worst day, costumed in her worst get-up ever, she had two crews filming her at the same time, one color RCA unit and the other from the black-and-white telecam. Maybe she would be better off with a spot-on password. At least all she would have to do then is cutely toss out synonyms for words like stenographer and zoologist. When Leonard backed away, Ajax strangely relaxed some underneath her. Instinctively, to calm herself, she matched his inhalations and exhalations with her own. Thank God for all her other flaws, she didn't breathe as loud as a horse. The Old West must have been punctuated by a continuous snuffling and snorting of gigantic nostrils, a merry music of its own if you were lonely enough. And no wonder Wanda thought of Leonard as a spy now. She felt like a fugitive herself, watched from all angles. The camera lens had always delivered her honey, and she usually returned it. Today it it felt more like an evil eye. When she was a teenager, the news magazines all showed the photos of Florence Chadwick when she swam the English Channel. A small boatload motored just behind a swimmer. Chadwick's every action was documented. Anyone who was lucky enough to have a swimming pool pretended to be her. Wanda was jealous of the admiration, but hating water, she set her sights on celebrity of another kind. Here she was working as hard as Florence, with nothing to show for it. She was washed up if June was the judge of things. Yet everywhere she went today, she would still be followed by not one, but two good ship dolly pops. The camera tracker with its assistance and the KNXT video unit performing its own intimate scrutiny of her uneven skin tone, elongated left earlobe, and neck mole. Like the crew that fed the swimmer her Weetabix from the boat, these guys helped Wanda to survive, but only because they were paid. To them, she was just another image to light correctly for the day's rushes. And what was the point of what she did? To inject a dollop of fizz into the lives of the ladies at home, perming and stocking up for their home, H-bomb shelters, while the kids were at school? It was something she knew how to do anyway, fat pig or not, and do it she would. She just had to remember that very soon she could call someone at home who wouldn't care if she could ever even fit into a moo. Scene 17, take one, screamed the A.D., Roll em, yelled Sandoval. After pausing for the split second of unearthly peace, which follows a director's start order, 
Wanda turned toward the camera eye hiding in the barn door and whispered conspiratorially, In just a second, audience, you should hear a deafening crack from the device our technical crew here has set to start this fire behind the Hooper place. Those of you who saw the movie sigh. She was right about one thing, the definite crack. Before she could finish her in-breath, she saw the key pyro scramble from the device. Even though she braced herself, Wanda didn't know what hit her. A rippling blast of sound sent her nervous system into shock, and not just hers. Ajax bolted, going from stationary into full gallop instantly. Leonard's words came back to her, don't fall off the horse. No one had told her how. She was tethered to a runaway horse by only the tiny strip of her flesh clinging to his reins, and she flew by the psycho house barn. She caught sight of the barn wall, airborne wood planks, texts running every which way, and there between the trembling mounds of nutsedge and wild mustard out flew that damn dreaded jackrabbit, running for his own life after the commotion. Gasps. Oh, shit. And oh, no, my dress. Filled the air. Then a hard, get the propane man in here. Is anyone hurt? All this quickly became peripheral to Wanda's panic as she relived another nightmare on a speedboat. An ex's idea of aquatic fun was a hellish afternoon when their date craft was lifted 20 feet into the air and dropped down into water turned to stone, all while the lover laughed hysterically. It was on the way down that the terror hit. She was out of control again. There had been no warning. She was still feet from the horse's back. How would she hit on the saddle? Would her ass ever look the same? Could she even hang on for that long? Ajax was a cockeyed bullet, skyrocketing willy-nilly to nowhere. She would personally strangle the obviously green technical director when she got back. The imbecile had marked them way outside the safety zone, and now look. Don't fall off the horse. Don't fall off the horse. Don't think. Hang on. But what if the horse didn't stop? She assumed a kind of flying-prone position, thinking her fat belly might help to cushion her. Her dancer's legs came in handy again. She was agile enough to essentially meld them to his sides with the fierceness he somehow accepted, even in the midst of his panic. She grabbed his mane and tried to use it to anchor her. It was too slippery, and she was losing her grip. She wrapped her arms around his neck until she feared choking him, but he'd have none of that, and shook his head furiously to stop it. That action, coupled with his riotous gait, threw her off balance. Her buttocks found contact with the saddle, but now the saddle was sliding. Their respective right flanks, which moments ago had been as one, were dislodging from one another fast. At this rate, she would be thrown and trampled under his powerful hind legs. Stop! She screamed. Ajax, stop! Halt! Stop! Whoa! Wasn't that the magic word, whoa? It was not magic for him. She watched as his eyes bulged and felt his neck muscles still tensing under her arms, hard as rock. Poor thing, he was genuinely terrified. Soon they would both crash into a building, or she would fly to the ground. She recognized the structure up ahead as the rear of the Abilene Street cul-de-sac. This must be the barn. On its face it was the adorable livery stable, but its back end was just a dirty concrete wall. They were careening toward that dirty wall. Nothing adorable about it. 
She talked directly into his ear, desperately attempting to sound calm. Listen, Ajax. Ajax, calm down. Shh. Shh, boy. It's okay. We're going to be okay. It's over now. Calm down. Slow down. Slow down. There you go. You're okay. It's over now. You never have to go back there again. Was he slowing down? Was he stopping? Oh, God, slow down. If this day ever ends, Ajax, I will take you away myself and put you somewhere safe. Just slow down. Please, please, please slow down. Look, isn't that your house? Yes, your house. Look. Look, there it is, Ajax. Come on, I promise I'll help you. Just please stop. That's a good boy. He wasn't exactly stopping, but he seemed to be slowing a little. There were just a few yards before he'd have to turn or collide into the wall. And then just inches before they each met up, bone to wall, he stopped. As suddenly still as he was suddenly in motion, he stopped, and she hadn't fallen off. How did that happen? Jesus fucking Christ. The place was really deserted. All Wanda could do was just sit there and grasp for air. With shaky hands, she enthusiastically petted the horse's mane like Timmy and his mother petted Lassie after an adventure. Good boy, Ajax. Good boy. No way could she dismount yet. Her legs felt like splintered toothpicks, the rest of her like a dissolving fizzy tab. She would have to brace herself against something to get down without falling. Where was everyone? She had never seen the back lot vacated like this. Wanda leaned over and rested her chest and neck back on the horse's mane to try and restore herself. She breathed in animal sweat through the glossy pad of black fringe. Ajax seemed as stunned as she by the whole business and is equally content to do absolutely nothing right now. Was he comforted by the sickening sweet fragrance which came from the earth wet with rain and fresh manure? As she rested, hoping someone would come by, Wanda found herself staring at a puddle which had formed in a rut outside the stable. A dragonfly hovered above the surface of the tiny pond. It made an island out of a torn piece of script and landed upon it. The dragonfly's wings gleamed like glass spun in torch flame. They vibrated continuously, reflecting one feeble ray of sunlight and flashing a color spray worthy of the abilene peacock. Why did this creature have such a ridiculous name? The only thing a dragon and a fly have in common is nothing. A fly is your enemy, a pesky little irritant, which carries disease and makes annoying noises. You swat it when you can get a good bead on it with one of those flimsy spatulas they sell at the dime store, which for some reason, even though they are covered with pieces of dead fly, People hang in their kitchens. But a dragon, nothing can catch. It breathes fire, supposedly, is covered with scales which themselves seem often to be made of, out of flame. It is a completely imaginary being used to both save and destroy other imaginary beings. What a thing to be a compound of such dissimilar and disproportionate entities. A dragonfly was simply an elaborate name for a bug. This one entertained Wanda as it shook rainbows all over a floating scrap of Mikhail's navy dialogue. What a weird world it was. 
At this observation, all was silence. The fake western town became still, and Wanda was in a church somewhere. She was sitting in that set-piece old west church in Ghost Town at Knott's Berry Farm. It was one of her grandmother's favorite spots. When she was home, Wanda didn't mind going to Knott's for a little stroll. She kind of enjoyed the challenge of stepping around the cocks and hens, which roamed the place but she always felt like a fool accompanying her grandmother inside the White Chapel. Wasn't this supposed to be an adventure park? A place for kids to be scared to death, pretend to be Black Bart and Annie Oakley, run around, eat berry products, and throw up. But grandmother just liked to go to the old-time church and sit inside it. There were Bibles stored in the pews and a wooden sign up front which gave out hymn numbers. The inside walls gave off the same dank smell as the mining rides passed by the keep-out danger signs. More evidence that the Old West was a place she could do without. She went along just to keep her grandmother company. When they entered, she always envisioned a church full of ghosts singing Sweet Hour of Prayer or Throw Out the Lifeline. Both women had little stomach for all the Bible songs about bleeding lambs being crushed into wine by the cross. In Wanda's fantasy, singing ghosts weren't filmy things in ripped sheets, but civilized folk, all dressed in black. Worrying about ghosts' attire kept her from being bored out of her mind. Sometimes there were other folks who came in, usually older. The women donned the ridiculous souvenir scarves they just bought. Instead of lace, they covered their heads with fabric depictions of Pawnee chiefs. Kids fleeing the masked bandit on the steam engine would tear in the doors yelling and knocking each other on the head with gigantic striped suckers and plastic knives. They couldn't escape fast enough when they they realized there was no line to wait in and no bobbing cars on a track. This really was a church, not a ride. Wanda's mother had told her that already, dead people see a blue light flashing when someone's about to die. It goes off if the person is revived and sticks on when they aren't going to make it. Once sitting there, she reported this to Grandmother. There's nothing to worry about, Grandmother answered. Everyone has to go home eventually, even you. With that, she had poked her in the tummy. Wanda clearly recalled that it had been one of her skinny days. She had eaten only coleslaw all day. Nothing jiggled when her tummy was touched. This was a great day for both of them. Wanda always wanted to make her grandmother laugh. She tried out a chicky-chick-boom doxology on her while they sat there. Praise Chi-Chi. God Chi-Chi. Neva slapped her arm, but Wanda looked up at her and saw her trying not to bust up. That's how Marilyn would sing it, Wanda insisted. That poor girl never stepped inside a church except to get married, her grandmother said. She came back to the moment with a sensation of drool matting her cheek to Ajax's mane. She couldn't tell if it was a minute or an hour she had been daydreaming as she startled at the sound of a car. A station wagon with a large hand-printed drive-on visible through the windshield, reversed into a spot up by the water tower. She looked down at herself. The coveralls remained perfectly stiff and ugly. 
visibly unaffected by the ordeal. She sat up straight and fluffed at her hair. Her fingers yanked hard at the ends and pulled, teasing with the other hand whatever strand she could into what felt like somewhat of a bubble. She pulled at her sleeve cuff and wiped the horse sweat from her face and most of her makeup with it. How must she appear to this? What was he? Judging by his blah costume and oddly serene expression, he was just some functionary with a piece of cake job. He didn't look nervous enough to be up to anything very significant. He may have seen her conked out on the saddle. Thank God he was probably a nobody. She called over to him. Hey, could you give me a hand? Where is everyone anyway? The driver looked over at her surprised. He hadn't even noticed the two of them welded there into statue pose. But he obliged her, walked his no more than five foot six of plain and simple, her way, and grabbed her right arm to steady her. Wanda crumpled somewhat upon hitting ground, and when she stood back up, her coverall front flew open. The unknown didn't try anything and looked instead into Ajax's eyes. Ajax, how you been? Good to see you, old boy. He reached out a freckled hand to pat Ajax with endearment. She became momentarily confused, thinking he was reaching for a handshake, and stuck out her own hand but she quickly recovered and stowed her hand in a roomy pocket. Why don't you go on and shake his hoof while you're at it, she said. Sure, she thought. Go ahead and ask the real crazy horse how he is. I'm the one you should ask about. As you can see for yourself, she said, Ajax is fine. Where is everyone? Answer me that. I've been waiting out here forever. Beats me, he said. I just got here. Well, the road's been completely deserted. Ajax ran off the set with me on him. He does that sometimes. You mean he's done it before, and you keep him working? He's going to kill someone one of these days. What, Ajax? No, he'd never do that. He's a trick horse. He's a mite touch since his accident, but he never hurts a rider. He's partial to gals. Don't wrestle with another nincompoop, she told herself. Just get out of here any way you can. Listen, I have to go back to the set. Give me a lift, would you? No, ma'am, sure can't. I've got work to do. Why don't you let Ajax take you back? Oh, no, we're through. I just can't get up on that again. She looked over at Ajax and he looked back at her. What they had just been through together. They practically had something going. Her eyes welled up. What if the dumb nut really had protected her? He had managed to stop the stupid cameras rolling long enough to get her off the set, and he'd even managed to provide her with a little respite. Actually, sir, I need to get to the Hotchkiss office, too. Maybe you could take me over there. Can't take you anywhere right now, he said. But I have to make a phone call. Help me out, can't you? There's a phone in the stable. You can use it when I'm through. When you're through... Look, isn't this a movie studio? I'm the talent, missing from the set on a runaway horse. You work here. It's your job to help me. What the hell's wrong with you? My job's the horses. Like I said, you can use the phone when I'm done or go over to that stop over there and let the jitney get you at lunchtime. Lunch? No. She looked at her watch. That's a whole fucking hour from now. 
There's no need to curse, lady. You look able-bodied to me. Anyway, those are your choices. He walked back to the car, opened the hatch, pulled out some metal storage boxes, rope and rolls of tape, and tossed them on the ground. He ignored Wanda completely. She wandered a little closer. You know, she said, I might be able to get you a spot on Daytalk. That's my show. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm actually here reporting on the set. I'm not just a guest star playing a a trespasser. You're not Liz Taylor, neither. She's the only dame I drop everything for. You missed my point, mister. He didn't comply with a name. My point is that I could probably arrange to get you an interview on camera. You do something or other here. Somebody must be interested in it. And your wife or whatever you have could see you on TV. Lady, give it a rest. Believe you me, I've had plenty of chances to be on television. He kicked the rope toward the barn, hitched up his sagging work pants, and readjusted the belt buckle. Why don't you just let Ajax take you the rest of the way? Talk to him if you need some company. Just leave me alone. I've got work. Mr. No Name went into the stable with one of the boxes, and she heard him fondly addressing another horse. Panama, you miss me? This fucker was hopeless. Unless you were a horse or national velvet, there was no getting to him. She glanced up at Ajax, who continued his sidelong look in her direction. He seemed remarkably peaceful. Maybe this otherwise useless friend of his had restored some confidence. There was no guessing. He had gotten her this far and she was still standing. Plus, in all honesty, she owed him one. Hey, whatever your name is, she yelled into the open door. I changed my mind. Can you help me back up on the saddle? He looked up at her and shook his head. Crazy female, he said. Just hold on a minute, will you? Wanda forced herself to thank the horseman for the boots, but only to save face. A few feet out, she heard his voice. Ajax paused and she turned her head. Look, I know who you are. I've seen you on Password. You look kind of different in person. I've heard that before, she said. Just keep going. Don't bother to correct him and do not ask him different how. It's probably just the best this guy can do for a compliment. Once aboard, Wanda was genuinely happy to be getting out of this dead-end road on her own, their own, six legs. She was even further delighted when Ajax behaved proper to his breed, their amitee now well-established. He circled over to the gravel path which led directly back to the Hooper place, a.k.a. Psycho House. He showed no fear as they neared the set, but as they got closer, she saw why that was. It didn't look like the same set. The barn was struck, and there were craft vehicles everywhere. A studio ambulance straddled the gully of rainwater that separated the road from the Hooper Place yard. Set assistants were busy putting down rolls of white tarp. There was someone on a stretcher, but he was sitting up and kicking his legs. He looked ridiculous, like one of those bit players in a Laurel and Hardy flick. Wanda couldn't make out a face, but she recognized the voice. Put me down. I can walk. This is ridiculous. I'm fine, goddammit. It's just my trick knee. She couldn't hear what the male nurse answered, but the guys carrying the stretcher paid no heed 
as they carefully hoisted Leonard into their emergency vehicle. Wanda could still hear him as they folded both the rear doors shut and locked it up tight. Must have happened when the barn side fell. She tugged on Ajax's reins to keep herself out of view so she could listen as they pulled out and Leonard continued yelling. Completely unnecessary. I have a bad knee. Someone needs to go find... That was all she got before the transportation man backed up the ambulance as far as it could go, turned, and drove up the hill. Leonard had to have been talking about her, find her. She was sure of that. Whatever was wrong with him, it couldn't be too bad for him to still be ranting like that. She would call Constance once she finally got to a phone. Let's stay out of here and go another way, she told the horse. She chugged gently to change direction, just as Doug had told her to do. It was a miracle. The horse obeyed and veered right. We're going to go find the Hotchkiss office, she said. I hope you're not afraid of a little traffic. They would have to get up on the main road. She had never seen a horse up there, but it couldn't be more than a quarter mile up New York Street, and what was the worst that could happen? A Keystone cop coming to give them a citation? But where did she think she would leave the horse? She couldn't just abandon him now in front of a production office. The Cleaver's house isn't far from there. They're on hiatus. Would you like it if I tied you up somewhere over there? There's all kinds of fences and rails at the Beavers. Good boy. You're doing so good. It's not much further. A 20-year veteran of the film industry at Universal, Warner Brothers, CBS, and the Writers Guild, Catherine Hine also held positions at New West and Rolling Stone and was a personal shopper at Nordstrom. After slowly running through an inheritance, she spent two years in a homeless women's shelter, which is where she began her epic two-volume novel, The Celebrity. Hine's other writing credits include The Bob Newhart Show, and a children's story series in the L.A. Times about a traveling circus in occupied France. She now holds a master's degree in English and an MFA in fiction from California State University, Long Beach. Intro music is from the song Slow, performed by Sally Dworsky, written by Sally Dworsky and Chris Hickey, available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Closing credits music is Moonlight in Vermont, performed by Ben Rifkin. Podcast art by Ryan Longnecker. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen worldwide. Novel and story submissions may be submitted via the contact page at www.alanrifkin.com. Thank you for streaming this edition of The Last We Fake.